This is the last of the series of speakers that we had on religious traditions and the ecology. And we're very happy to have with us a good friend, uh, Dr. Joseph Kelly from Merrimack College, which is in the North Andover, Massachusetts. Do we have any Massachusetts residents here? From North Andover. Just kidding, North Andover itself. Two minutes from Merrimack College. Huh. We all would ask why it didn't go on. <laughs> <laughs> Probably couldn't get in. Dr. Kelly, I'm going to read a little bit about you uh, here to everyone, just to, to give you a, a sense of who we have with us. He's a, an, also an associate professor um, of religious and theological studies. He's founder of the Center for Augustinian Study and Legacy at Merrimack. Currently, he serves as the vice president for mission and, of mission and advancement. Just advancement. Just advancement. No longer mission. Lost the mission. All right. Um, he's a former provost um, at Merrimack. He holds a PhD in religious studies from Boston University, doctor of ministry and clinical pastoral psychology from Andover Newton Theological School, an MA in theology from the Catholic University of America, and a B in A in philosophy from. Villanova University. Uh, since his arrival at Merrimack, he's also served as Vice President for Student Life, Director of Campus Ministry, has worn many hats at Merrimack. Uh, he's a clinical psychologist, musician, author, uh, a number of books, 101 Questions on the Bible, is it Paul's Press? Well, uh, not the Bible, uh, what was it on? Prayer and oh, that's the Four right. Last Things. Four Last Things. Faith in Exile, Finding Hope in Times of Doubt, and you have a forthcoming book on prayer? Or is that the one? Is that on Augustine, too, on Augustine. On Augustine. Yeah. We're looking forward to any, any uh, target date for when they'll be coming? No, I'll break out in cold sweat. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you here to kind of talk to us, give us some insight on Augustine, um, and continue with our year of sustainability that we're celebrating here at Villanova um, and the ecology. Welcome. Thanks, and it's great to be back uh, to my alma mater, especially this week. Uh, I was telling Father Joe, in 1985 I had just married, and my wife was from Europe, and she and a friend of hers who was staying with us were there, and they didn't know what basketball meant, let alone the Lenovo <laughs> basketball. So I watched the 1985 championship game by myself in the back bedroom, screaming and yelling and uh, taking my heart medication. But uh, hopefully we'll have a repeat of that this weekend. Um, 
The title of my talk is Job, Augustine, and Captain Picard, <laughs> Catholic and Augustinian Reflections on Ecological Conversion. Uh, but before we start, I want to give it a quiz. You know, pre-test, post-test. This is a pre-test pre quiz. Here's a quote. We may feel a deeper wonder at the agility of a mosquito on the wing than at the size of a beast of burden on the hoof and may admire more intensely the works of the smallest of ants than the burdens of camels. What is the source of this quote? A, a National Geographic article on insects. B, an episode of House. C, Augustine's City of God book. D, Darwin's Origin of the Species. And E, or E. The Book of Job. There'll be a test afterwards. You can use a lifeline, make a phone call, whatever you want to do. Okay. Job, Augustine, and Captain Picard. Catholic and Augustinian Reflections on Ecological Conversion. Before we get on to popes and bishops and uh, ecclesiastical matters, I'd like to start by appealing to a hierarch, not a uh, cardinal or cleric, but a captain, Captain John Luke Picard. I don't know if there are any trekkers in here, but you may remember that in the last season of Star Trek The Next Generation, one of the final episodes revealed that warp speed, you know, that super speed at which Star Trek's, Star, Star Trek starships traveled, was in fact destroying the universe, interrupting the time-space continuum. So John Luke has a problem. In the final scene of the episode, gazing out of the Enterprise at the star-studded blackness of space, he said, all this while, as I've been exploring the universe that I love, I may have been destroyed. Now, if you know anything about the series, warp speed is the fictional premise upon which Star Trek, as a myth, is based. Without warp speed, there's no interplanetary travel. Without warp speed, there's no trekking among the stars. So this one episode undermines the entire myth that the series and the movies and the whole industry of Star Trek has been built upon. It also undermines the myth about a bright future for humankind in the universe. Now, of course, the writers hope we get the analogy the wondrous warp technology of a science fiction future has all the while been undermining that future itself. So, TV viewers, what technologies and industries that we use today are warping the fabric of our earthbound environment? So like Jean-Luc, we too should be forlorn, for we are inadvertently destroying the world that we love by our ecological abuse, by our wasteful practices, and the squandering of resources. This particular episode aired for the first time in November of 1993. We were just talking about how old we are and how young we are. So don't know where you were then, but a whole quarter of a century earlier, 
almost 25 years earlier, Pope Paul VI penned words that could apply to the fictional dilemma in which Captain Picard found himself. They certainly apply to our environmental dilemma. The Pope, at that time, in 1971, wrote, We are suddenly becoming aware that by an ill-considered exploitation of nature, we risk destroying it and becoming, in turn, the victims of this environmental degradation. Not only, it, not only is the material environment becoming a permanent menace to us due to pollution and refuse, new illnesses, and absolute destructive capacity, but the human framework is no longer under human control. The human framework within, the, within which we live is no longer under our control. Thus, we are creating an environment for tomorrow which may well be intolerable. That's in 1971. And Paul VI first began raising environmental issues in the late 60s and early 70s in the context of the economic development of the third world. I just watched the news before I came here. It's the same context. President Obama, about an hour ago, said, if China and India were to use energy at the rate that we Americans use energy, he said, we would all melt from global warming. It's the same issue that, how many, 40 years ago, Pope Paul VI brought up. And over the past 40 years, the Catholic Church, through the Pope and the bishops and, and lay organizations, has addressed uh, the critical issue of the environment again and again. And I would recommend that if you haven't visited the often Office of Mission Effectiveness webpage, please do, because Chris has provided there uh, an overview of the hundreds of documents that have come out from the popes, the bishops, and lay groups on uh, Catholic teaching about the environment. Now, I have some handouts to help you follow. Uh, thanks, Joe. I think it's important, I'm presuming that you are aware of environmental issues and that you are aware that there is a Catholic Church. But I'm not so sure how aware you are of the fact that the Church has been addressing environmental issues, as I mentioned, for over 40 years. So I think the text, that is the actual words that have come from some uh, official church, church teachings are important to hear and to see. And that's the purpose of these handouts. So you have them, okay? Shortly after Pope Paul VI made that statement, the bishops of the world met in Rome in the summer of 1971. And they raised again this theme of uh, how do we balance pollution and care for the environment with the development of third world countries? And the bishops in their document wrote, and again, you can follow along, if you wish, with some of these quotes in that handout, that material resources, as well as the precious treasures of air and water, without which there cannot be life, and the small, delicate biosphere of the whole complex of all life on Earth, are not infinite but on the contrary must be saved and 
preserved. They continue, such is the demand for resources and energy by the richer nations, whether capitalist or socialist. And again, that issue came up yesterday and today in London at the G20. Such are the effects of disposal in the atmosphere and the sea that irreparable damage would be done to the essential elements of life on Earth if the constantly increasing rates of consumption and pollution in rich nations were extended to the whole of humankind. These words were written before most of you in this room were born. It was a problem then. The population of the world in 1971 was about 3.7 billion. The population today is 6.7 billion. It has almost doubled. And that growth has been in the developing nations, mostly in Asia, Latin America, and uh, India and China, as well as in Africa. So really, we're living in the future that Paul VI and the bishops spoke about, and the environmental issues have increased, you might say, at warp speed. John Paul II. John Paul continued his predecessor's concern about the use and abuse of natural resources. In his 1987 encyclical, The Social Concern of the Church, he wrote that a proper concern for social and economic development, quote, cannot exclude respect for the beings which constitute the natural world. That's a very important phrase for the beings which, con which constitute the natural world. We'll come back to that. He continues, a true concept of development cannot ignore the use of the elements of nature, the renewability of resources, and the consequences of haphazard industrialization. Again, watch the news tonight. You'll hear uh, President Obama and uh, Gordon Brown and Angela Merkel and all the others addressing these very same issues. That's a good thing. This is the first time uh, since Kyoto that, on an international level, it, these issues have gotten such notice and attention. Four years later, in 1991, in his encyclical on the 100th anniversary of Catholic social teaching, John Paul wrote more forcefully that, at the root of the senseless destruction of the environment lies an anthropological error. This error is that people think, quote, they can make arbitrary use of the earth as though it did not have its own requisites and a prior God-given purpose. Interesting coming from the papal office, you know, another recognition that since the Copernican Revolution, we are not the center of the universe and all things. In other words, environmental abuse occurs because humans are the self-appointed center of the universe. We get to Augustine you'll hear the same theme. Sustainability has been a strong, clear, concise, and consistent theme in Catholic social teachings in the 1970s, the 1980s, and 1990s. I don't know how much of you hear of it at church on Sunday, but it's there in the teaching of the official church. If you, for example, were to look at uh, the documents on the uh, mission office webpage, you would notice, notice certain themes occurring uh, again and again. And I've listed them for you in the handout. They're bulleted. Let's just go over them once. 
Uh, if you were to do any research or papers on this topic, these are topics you'd have to uh, cover. The resources of the earth belong to all. A safe and healthy environment is a basic human right. Rome has been pushing for that in the inclusion of human rights in the United Nations. The diversity of nature is a reflection of divine beauty. The beauty and order of nature is a spiritual path to contemplation of the divine. The rights of the poor in developing nations should not be sacrificed in the correction of ecological abuses. And the vast complexity and scope of environmental problems requires a new international solidarity. That last point, and again, I just I was just at home with my parents in Berlin, and uh, we were, Obama just gave a press conference, and he must have said that five times. The issues uh, of the economy, but also the issues that face us all, are so complex, and we are so interrelated with each other, that we have to approach the topic together. If you were to read one document, and I have copies of it here for you to take when you leave, of all of these hundreds, it should be Pope John Paul II's address on January 1, 1990, New Year's Day, January 1, 1990. Uh, the Church has observed for many years now New Year's Day as the World Day of Peace. So that theme comes up every New Year's Day, World Peace. And John Paul II chose January 1, 1990, World Day of Peace, to address the question of ecology. World Peace, he says again and again, requires that we address ecological problems. He goes on in that short statement that he read to say that the ecological crisis is not just a scientific, technological, uh, industrial problem. It is a moral crisis. And again, I mean, that's kind of the nugget of Catholic social teaching. The ecological problem is a moral problem. He says, perhaps the moral issue of our day. That, that's an extremely important statement coming from Usually the church is associated immorality with what? Sex. John Paul was saying the, the moral issue of our day is the ecological crisis. At its foundation, our abuse and misuse of environmental resources is a failure of global proportions to respect life in all its diversity, its fragility, and its interdependence. He says urgent action is needed on all levels, the local level, the state level, the national level, the international level. And he says by a new internationally coordinated approach to the management of Earth's goods, such as Kyoto. And in a document, uh, perhaps reflecting on the Gulf War, the first Iraq War, which had started just a few months earlier in August, uh, he says, any and all wars wreak inestimable ecological damage. Now in the heart of this document, he makes a further, he pushes it a bit further. He says that education about environmental issues, which is crucial, 
And I, I don't know how many of you have younger brothers or sisters or little nieces or nephews or friends in school, but ecology and ecological issues have crept into the curriculum at, in preschool. And that's a good thing. So he says ed education about environmental issues is very important. But education should lead to what he calls conversion. And he introduces for the first time the idea of ecological conversion. And I want to spend time on it. Ecological conversion. Uh, two weeks later, in his Wednesday audience of January 17th in Rome, he brings it up again, this idea of ecological conversion. Uh, and there's a copy of that very short audience uh, talk in, in the handout you can take with you. What does that mean, ecological conversion? Isn't conversion a, a religious experience? Uh, you know, you become a Catholic, or you become a Buddhist, or you become a Muslim. Isn't it changing from one religion to another, or isn't it finding God? Why did the Pope put those two words together, ecological and conversion? Well, let's explore that. And to do that, I'd like to introduce St. Augustine of Hippo. I presume you've all heard of him. <laughs> One assumption I can make, other than Scotty Reynolds, St. Augustine. Okay. Uh, ecological conversion is at its root, a change in a person's relationship with nature. A change in one's mind and heart and behavior regarding the created world and the universe. And, and I do this with some hesitation because we have a distinguished philosopher in our midst. But I would claim, and some Augustinians, but I claim that we find a dramatic example of ecological conversion the life of St. Augustine. And I don't think I'm reaching here. All right, I've got to prove my point. Now, you know something of Augustine's life, I presume, uh, about his stormy, ad but typical adolescence, his uh, philosophical wanderings, the Manichaeism, the Neoplatonism, uh, his struggle with being at the heart of the Roman court, the imperial court in, in Milan and his final conversion to Christianity. This story has intrigued and enchanted and, de and delighted and challenged tens of thousands of people over the last 1,600 years. So when did Augustine have time for an ecological conversion? And why would he need one? Uh, certainly, Augustine and his compatriots in the, in the uh, 4th and 5th century didn't face the environmental crisis that we face today. If you stay with Augustine after his first famous conversion and baptism in 386 and 387, and if you follow his writings carefully from 389 on, so just a few years after his baptism in 387, in 389 he begins a series of five major works. And the theme of every work is creation, nature. Uh, I list them in the handout, just so you have them. The first in 389 on Genesis, right, the first book of the Bible that talks about creation. On Genesis, Genesis against the Manichees, 389. 
on the literal interpretation of Genesis, an unfinished book in 394. He didn't finish it in 394, but that's the date it's associated with. Books 11, 12, and 13 of the Confessions. Those are the books nobody ever reads. <laughs> Has anybody read them, students? Say, I, once when I taught the course of the Confessions, I made them read the last three books. <laughs> they hated me. Uh, but he, he, that's what he talks about there. It's a, it's a trilogy of chapters on uh, creation, 397 to 401. Then on the literal interpretation of Genesis that he did finish from 401 to 415, look how long it took him. That something's going on when it takes a writer 14 years to finish a paper or a book. And then the City of God, book 11, uh, City of God from 413 to 426. And I also quote from book 22 of the City of God, uh, as you'll see. What's going on? Why did Augustine, with all that he had to do as a busy priest and bishop, uh, with all of his uh, doctrinal battles with the Manichaeans and the Pelagians and the Donatists and the church politics, why did he spend so much of his time in the evening burning that wonderful North African olive oil to give him light to, to work on creation? What was going on? You may remember that when he was 18 or 19 and he had gone off to Carthage to, to university, and he got a scholarship from a friend of his, of his father's, and he went off to Carthage, uh, and within his first year or year and a half, he joined a sect, the Manichaean sect. Uh, and Manichaeanism was a strange, exotic combination of Persian dualism, took a little bit from Persian religion, uh, Christian doctrine and Gnostic uh, secrecy. Uh, it caught Augustine's imagination, even if it never really convinced his keen mind. But he was a member, uh, sort of a, an observing member of that. He was always pledging, let's put it that way. He never completely joined but he was always pledging, and that lasted until he left Carthage to go to Rome um, when he was 30, 31. Really, even in Rome, he never left them because he, he used them for political connections. When he gets to Milan, and he's about 30 or 31 years of age, he leaves Manichaeanism. Now, some of you may be aware of this, but I think it's worth going through. Manichaeism, it's a doctrine, taught that matter is evil, spirit is good. Now, right away, the alarm bell should be going on. Dark, heavy, impermeable, stony, or fleshy matter is from the evil one. Light, airy, translucent, wispy, willowy, spirit is from God. Salvation is separating the two, because right, the creation is a mix of evil and good. Matter, evil, spirit, good. Salvation is separating the two and escaping as much as possible from the heaviness of the physical world, ignoring as much as possible the uh, exigency, the obstinacy of nature, of things, and retreating into the light of the non-material spiritual. Augustine would have made, the young Augustine would have made a very poor environmentalist. 
if your presupposition is that matter doesn't matter, then you're not going to care much about nature. After he finally and intellectually left the Manichaean sect, but before he became a Christian, Augustine met a group of intellectuals in Milan, which was the capital of the empire at that time. And from them, he learned about the more intellectually sophisticated, philosophically respectable thought of Neoplatonism. This reprise of Plato's philosophy uh, from Polinus, uh, Plotinus in the third century was not as crudely dualistic as Manichaeanism. However, it encouraged just the same, a mystical ascent away from creation, away from material creation, to ever higher levels of mystical experience until finally you were freed from matter, from creation itself, and experienced unity with the one. God, sort of, if you will. Uh, we hear about Augustine's attempts to practice Neoplatonic mysticism in Book 7 of the Confessions. And he talks about how hard he worked at it. And it always kind of fell flat, sort of like me practicing meditation in the morning. So, before his baptism, the young Augustine's two flirtations with spirituality and religion were Manichaeanism and Neoplatonism. They both predisposed him to dismiss the created world of matter, in other words, all of creation, as irrelevant, or at best instrumental to, to salvation in the case of Neoplatonism, or in the case of Manichaeanism, as inherently evil and undesirable. And here's the point. Augustine's conversion to Christianity and even the waters of baptism didn't free him from those preconceptions about nature and its undesirability. Using the words of John Paul II again, Augustine, I think even as a young Christian, could not understand that created matter has its own requisites and a prior God-given purpose. He may have had that as an idea he heard, but it wasn't here. That's why I think it takes Augustine from 389 to 426, to, from the time he's 35 until he's about 72, to work through his ecological conversion and to get rid of his previously dark and dismissive understanding of the created world. That's a long time. I think it's a much more interesting conversion, by the way. Lots of people became Christians, got baptized, found Jesus. But I don't know how many, even today, work through what John Paul challenges us to ecological conversion. It's a harder road. However, over time, Augustine, uh, and I just had an argument with one of our professors at Merrimack. He thinks, I shouldn't tell you this at this point, but he thinks I'm completely wrong in this. <laughs> Augustine never, under, never overcame his uh, Manichaean and Neoplatonic dismissiveness of nature. That person's wrong, and I'm right, so listen. <laughs> um, 
But let's begin now to listen, and I refer you to the handout, to some of the texts of Augustine. He slowly comes to affirm in faith that God created all things. All created things are in themselves good, and that the magnificent diversity of creation is a reflection of infinite divine beauty. Those themes emerge again and again, like, like waves of the ocean. They keep crashing against the rocks of his Manichaeanism, his Neoplatonism, and, and, and reducing them. He writes in books, the book seven of the Confessions, that everything that exists is good. You have made all good things, and there are absolutely no substances that you have not made. In book 11 of the City of God, Augustine sounds like a contemporary Christian biologist marveling at creation. And look, please follow me with this. It also answers the quiz question. Every creature has a special beauty proper to its nature. And when one ponders the matter well, these creatures are a cause of intense admiration and enthusiastic praise of their all-powerful maker. God creates them in tiny, in tiny in body, keen in sense, and full of life, so that we may feel a deeper wonder at the agility of a mosquito on the wing than at the size of a beast of burden on the hoof, and may admire more intensely the works of the smallest of ants than the burdens of camels. This is a, an old bishop sharing his excitement at the marvels of nature. Such writing would have been anathema to a Manichaean, or, or even a Neoplatonist. Listen again to the old bishop writing poetically of the beauties of nature in Book 22, almost toward the end of the City of God, just about four years before his death. I can picture him walking along the harbor in um, Hippo, what is today Annabelle, maybe enjoying the sea and smelling the luxurious flowers that, that still grow there. He writes, shall I speak of the manifold and various loveliness of sky and earth and sea, of the plentiful supply and wonderful qualities of the light, which Augustine calls light the queen of colors, of sun, moon, and stars, of the shade of trees, of the colors and perfume of flowers, of the multitude of birds, all differing in plumage and in song, of the variety of animals of which the smallest in size are often the most wonderful, the works of ants and bees, astonishing us more than the huge bodies of whales. Shall I speak of the sea, which itself is so grand a spectacle that when it arrays itself, as it were, in vestures of various colors, now running through every shade of green and again becoming purple or blue, is it not delightful to look at in a storm? In the same book, 22, from the City of God, he marvels at the human body. He sounds like a surgeon. Listen. What if we know more precisely how all the body's parts are connected and adapted to one another? But if these connections, if these connections could be known, then even the inward parts would seem to have no beauty, would so delight us with their exquisite fitness as to afford a profounder satisfaction to the mind than the obvious beauty which gratifies the eye, the beauty of the outer, outer body. 
my thesis really is that as Augustine matures in his Christian vocation over many, many years, his appreciation of nature and the environment takes a central place in his thought. He luxuriates in the beauty of the created world, affirming over and over in his writings and sermons that all creation is from God, all creation is good, and all creation reflects its maker. This is his long-term and perhaps more interesting conversion story. Now, if you know Augustine, you also know he's always on the lookout for evil and sin and the effects of sin. Another important dimension of Augustine's ecological conversion is his conviction that we humans have responsibility. We have to take responsibility for creation, for what we today would call the environment. And he thinks, and he's very explicit about this, he thinks we sin against creation in three ways, for three reasons. Because of our greed, because of aversion, because we don't, we're, we're repelled by certain things in nature, and because we exploit nature for our own needs. Because of our greed, our aversion, and our exploitation. By greed, because instead of seeing nature as it is in itself, we see it only in light of its usefulness to us. So we devalue in nature what does not seem useful to us, and we exploit what is useful. This language seems prophetic to, to us in the 21st century. Here's an example. In Book 11 of The City of God, he writes about how mice and fleas are inconvenient and disgusting. Okay, <laughs> might agree with that. So we just got a cat, and the cat brought in fleas to the house. If you want to look at aversion, talk to my wife. So we want to eradicate that which repels us in nature. He writes, we do this whether in ignorance of the place they hold in nature, or though we might know the place they hold in nature, sacrificing them to our own convenience. These are fifth century words of a philosopher, theologian, writing about the complexity of ecosystems. He says, we don't understand how things in nature, which we might find repulsive, we don't understand their place in the overall ecology of life. That doesn't give us any right to eradicate them. When I was a kid down on the Jersey Shore, one of the things we loved to do when I think about this, of course it could explain my momentary lapses of memory, the, the mosquito uh, sprayers would come out. Remember that? The Jersey Shore? And these trucks would go through, spewing out uh, blue gas of some type that was killing all the mosquitoes. And we'd, we'd run down the streets in Wildwood inhaling the stuff. Um, what were we doing, first of all, to the kids? And what were we doing to the environment? It's a perfect example of what Augustine's talking about. Here's a, a writer in the 5th century writing this in the early 400s saying, just because we don't understand or don't like different aspects of the ecosystem doesn't give us the right to eradicate or exploit it. Nature is from God and belongs to all of us. 
for our life and our delight. In his commentary on Psalm 147, which is a Hebrew song that sings the joys of, of nature and creation, Augustine writes about our use of the fruits of nature in words that sound like a contemporary campaign for limited use of scarce resources and careful recycling. God asks back what he gave you, and from God you take what is enough for you. The superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. That, that's one of, the, one of the most politically subversive statements in philosophical or theological literature. Superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. When you possess superfluities, you possess what belongs to others. If Augustine were here this afternoon, he might put it this way. The superflu superfluous water you leave untouched in your water bottle actually belongs to a child with a parched throat in Darfur. The food you left on your cafeteria tray this afternoon at lunch really belongs to a kid in North Philly who won't have dinner tonight. And when you throw unwanted or outdated clothes in the trash, you are disposing of someone else's garments. The superfluities of the rich are the necessities of the poor. Augustine's ecological conversion ultimately, ultimately matures into a social justice of equality, of ecology. Listen to a sermon he gave to his people. Sermon 29. He's confronting his congregation. Do you think it's a small matter that you are eating someone else's food? Superfluity of the rich, the necessities of the poor. Listen to the apostle, he says. We brought nothing into this world, yet a full table is spread before you. The earth and its fullness belong to God, not to just powerful, wealthy individuals or nations. God bestows the world on the poor. God bestows the world on the rich. The fullness of Augustine's ecological conversion is his pastoral and social commitment to ecological justice. So I would assert again that Augustine, in his writings on creation, provide a good example of what John Paul II meant by ecological Okay, let's move toward a close. We started with um, Star Trek and Jean-Luc Picard, and then we worked back 16, oh, I guess 2,000 years to Augustine. Let's go back almost another 1,000 years to Job. Uh, what could Job possibly have to teach us about environmental responsibility. Uh, the population of the world, ethnologists and those people who study this sort of thing, say at the time the book of Job was written, hard to date it, maybe 500 BCE, the population of the entire world was maybe 100 million people. You know, how many Americans are there now? 320 million, something like that. So the, the entire world at that time. You don't have a lot of ecological problems uh, with such a small population. Uh, 
So what can Job have to teach us about ecology? In his writings, John Paul II said the, the ecological crisis is a, is a moral crisis. But he said something else, it's also a spiritual crisis. And that's my final point. You know the story of Job. He was a prosperous uh, landowner, a religious man, had everything you could dream of. Satan says, Job is religious, God, because he's got everything. Let me test him. So Job, little by little, loses his, uh, his house, his family, his wealth, and finally his health. And he's reduced to sitting on a dung heap uh, when Satan has finished with him. Nonetheless, he remains faithful to God. And then there follows 30-some chapters of arguments. Job is saying, the accepted teaching of the time was that if you're good, God will reward you. If you're evil, God will punish you. If you're being punished, if you're having a rough time in life, you must have done something wrong. By the way, I think we still ask that question today. Uh, Job protests again and again. I have done nothing wrong. I'm not perfect, but I have tried to be good. This is not fair. And he has these three friends who constantly argue with him. And scripture scholars tell us that uh, they're actually presenting various uh, philosophical schools of the time about the nature of good and evil and wrong and right behavior and all of that. And they go on and on and on, and the arguments get more and more and more complicated. And finally, in chapter 38, 30, the end of 37, it ends. And chapter 38 opens with this long, luxurious, and beautiful hymn to creation. You're reading the book, it's like, well, wait a minute, I must have missed a page. This, this doesn't make sense. You go from rational argumentation up to chapter 37 and chapter 38 to the end, about four more chapters, it's poetry. Why that subversion of the, of the rational arguments? Those chapters 38, 39, 40, 41, 42 in Job, they rival the book of Genesis in their description of creation. And God starts, God starts sort of an argument to Job. He says, where were you, Job? when I created the world. Do you know how it works? And it was, I think, the, some of the best passages in Scripture are chapter 38, following in Job. But what's, what's going on? I think the answer is at once simple and mysterious. Job's faith, which has been sorely tested and tried by his suffering, is not restored by rational argument, <clears throat> but by his experience of God through nature. His journey through doubt and despair leads finally to the consolation of the divine presence experienced through the world around him. And in the end, this is the beautiful image of Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. He just begins to allow himself to experience. In nature, he finds divine healing for all of his suffering. 
I'll bet that many of you have had a similar experience. When you, you're really suffering because you've had a tremendous loss, or you've been betrayed, or someone you love has discovered they have a terminal illness. When somebody comes in and, well, it's, it's God's will, and they give you all kinds of reasons, it doesn't help a whole lot. For many of us, we little by little slowly come to experience God's presence to us in our suffering through the beauty of the created world. But what happens when the created world is suffering and sick? What happens when nature, which in just about every major world religion is considered a symbol of and a sacrament, really if you use words, of the divine, a way to the divine. What happens when that path begins to get overgrown by weeds that we have sown as human beings? What happens when it begins to submerge in human waste? What happens when we no longer, like Job, have access to God through nature? What do we do when nature is sick? Who heals us then? The ecological crisis is also a spiritual crisis. We are in danger of losing one of the basic human roads to God through nature. The Catholic bishops of the Philippines, speaking for their many indigenous tribal people, across the island, the archipelago of the Philippines, uh, wrote in 1988 these words. And again, they're trying to give voice to the tribal peoples in the Philippines. Where are some of the most beautiful creatures who used to dwell in our forests? These are God's masterpieces, through which God displays his power, ingenuity, and love for creation. Many species are already extinct, and destruction of species is expected to increase dramatically during the next decade. This is 20 years ago. As the few remaining strands of our forests are wiped out by logger and by slash-and-burn farmers. What about the birds? They used to greet us each morning and lift our spirits beyond the horizons of this world. Now they are silent and ask any one of us older folks in the room what mornings were like 20, 30 years ago. They're not the same. You'll never hear the variety of songbirds in the northern woodlands where we live in this, in this continent that we heard as kids. You probably all saw or read uh, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's now famous trilogy. Uh, you remember the threat of ecological destruction of Middle-earth, the inhabitants of Middle-earth were suffering under the spread of the imperial evil that was taking down the trees. It's, it's kind of a, uh, a warped industrialization. Well, Tolkien, uh, was a devout Roman Catholic, was very, very upset about the destruction of rural England back in the 40s and 50s, uh, as continuing of the industrial, the industrial revolution. 
And he knew, this, this theme is throughout all of his works, that the loss of the beauties of nature is a spiritual crisis. Let's end with Benedict XVI, our present pope. If you read his works, you'll find uh, consistent references, especially to the works of John Paul II. I think today is the fourth anniversary of John Paul's death. We have a special mass at St. Peter's tonight. It's hard to believe. But, um, and he, Benedict keeps going back to that January 1, 1990 address John Paul gave. But Benedict also brings his very particular theological approach. And on the World Day of Peace, January 1, 2007, just a little over two years ago, he writes this. It is understandable that visions of what it means to be human will vary from culture to culture. Yet what cannot be admitted is the cultivation of anthropological conceptions, understandings of what it means to be human, that contain the seeds of hostility and violence. Equally unacceptable are conceptions of God that would encourage intolerance and recourse to violence against others. If you read all of this document, you'd see that Benedict reminds us that the ever-growing scarcity of natural resources is fraught with possibilities for violence, violence and intolerance. He's turning up the heat. You go back to 1971, you go back to 1987, 1988, and all these other documents. What Benedict is saying now, we're at the point of asking, how are we going to deal with the violence and the fighting that is beginning to happen over scarce resources? And we're not talking about Africa necessarily. Uh, talk to some folks from Arizona and California. Battles, political and, and uh, unfortunately at times even personal battles, have begun over there about the use of water. We're getting too much. Many parts of our country are not getting enough. So the scarcity of natural resources is fraught with possibilities for violence and intolerance. And what Benedict says then, as we stare at each other across the ecological divide, as we in the first world, who still, relatively speaking, have a superfluity of what we do, we stare across the ecological divide at those on the other side who don't. Benedict's question is, what do you think of that other person? How do you think about these other people? In other words, ecological conversion, Benedict says, requires, big term, anthropological conversion. You can't think about the environment and the problems you have with it without thinking about the people with whom we share it. He pushes it just a little further. It's a fascinating shift if you study the whole history of Catholic teaching on the environment. So let's end by applying to ourselves Benedict's principle that ecological conversion requires anthropological conversion. Go back to Augustine's understanding of the distribution of natural goods. Your excess clean water, your wasted food, or your unnecessary clothing 
actually belong to somebody else, according to Augustine. Someone you may never have met, or ever will meet. But that person is out there. In Philly, Darfur, Iraq. As we ask theoretical or scientific questions about scarce resources, Benedict invites us to ask some deeper soul-searching questions. What do you think? How do you feel about the thirsty woman to whom that water bottle in your fridge really belongs? Who is she for you? How do you think, how do you feel about the child whose clothing lies on the floor of your closet? How do you feel about them? Who are they for you? When do you ever think, I include myself in this, when do we ever think, or do we allow ourselves to think about the man whose malnourishment lays claim to the food on my plate, on my tray? Your observations or comments, I'd be happy. And, and also, you know, instructive comments that you might want to disagree or say, what about this or that? Dr. Wall. Joe, uh, thank you. This was extremely well done. It was uh, quite fine. We had a speaker, just two comments I made. We had a speaker recently, uh, Mark Wallace, who is a theologian from the Swampmore and also an Episcopal priest. He made the point, uh, he just said the same thing, but in a different language. He said, you know, I could spend a whole lot of time identifying all the ecological disasters. And sometimes when we do that, it's a bit withering because we realize we're all in big trouble. However, he said, the real issue is it's not so much how much you know about all of this, but it's what has to happen for things to change is a conversion of the heart. And that's where he said he saw the role of religious institutions in trying to bring about that kind of conversion of the heart. Because otherwise, the situation is not going to change no matter how much I know about it. Unless, and that's of course a very Augustinian principle, uh, which I, I thought was really fascinating. Um, well, it's like Plato, isn't it? You know, Plato yeah. presumes if you know what the good is, you'll choose it. But Finding out what the good is, because there were yeah. so many things. The other point I would make is I appreciate your rendition of the tradition, particularly in Catholic social teaching, but I could go through prior to 1990 uh, in, in the documents, beginning with Rerum Navarum of 1881, and point out where nature is seen in the context of how it is seen in the world at large, namely as an entity to be, the word is used, master, uh, control that human freedom is identified with mastery over the earth and with its subsidiary to human needs, etc. I could amass all those texts. But it's really only with the transformation that John Paul II makes. And, interestingly enough, in 1986, the Catholic bishops of Wales Right, that's a great document. On their document on the common good, make the specific point of saying that they stretch the conception of the common good to include not just humans, as it has been understood for centuries, right. 
but of all of creation. And it's in the 1990s that you see this beginning to come through in J.E.2's language. But really, it was in the context of understanding the common good, not as we always understood philosophically and theologically in the past as the good <coughs> of humans, but rather right. the, common, the concept of the common good itself gets stretched to include all of creation. So I think that... Um, That's a very good point. We Christians have a problem because, as Dr. Walt mentioned, we objectify nature. We're really good, John Paul especially, very good on subject to subject. John Paul's problem was that the different forms of government, Marxism certainly, and capitalism, each in its own way, objectifies people. They become instruments, ways to amass our own gain. Uh, I still see John Paul struggling with the ability to understand nature as a subject. This is a little different. Uh, and then that problem goes way back to when to, mo to the origins of monotheism. Because if you if you read the Bible uh, and, and look at indigenous peoples today, they personify and subjectify elements of nature, all of nature, as a god associated with us. But in official Catholic teaching and, and Christian teaching in general, we don't do that. Nature. I don't know. I think that would be my critique. Uh, I think common good is a way of getting around that. But in official church teaching, we can't get to the point where we experience nature as a subject to be encountered, unless you're a Wiccan or you know, a Druid. Or... But I think there's a value there. Uh, a Jewish friend of mine says, well, of course, Christians, you can't be very good environmentalist. Your God, the last time your God met a tree, it wasn't a very healthy encounter for him. <laughs> I have to think about that for a while. But uh, he was trying to say that he doesn't see in Christianity um, enough to, to build environmental awareness. It's, it's interesting. Uh, John Paul II, what I think was especially aware of environmental problems because of where he grew up. He grew up where my wife grew up, in Krakow, Poland. And after World War II, uh, Krakow was the only city in Poland that resisted uh, the position of communism. So uh, Stalin decided to punish them. So he strategically put factories all around Krakow, which is like what LA is in a kind of hole, the bottom of the hole. So Krakow has one of the worst environmental uh, disasters to deal with in Europe. We're just beginning now to deal with it. That's where he grew up. So he was very sensitive to that. But I don't see him taking his philosophy of subjectivity, personalism, and extending it to nature. That's a big jump for any Christian to make. Except Francis. Brother, son, sister. I think you find in the, the more poetic, mystical, non-ecclesiastical side of Christianity a mysticism of nature. See, that's where I think we, we lost contact with the Incarnation. I mean, I think the monotheism aspect, the emphasis on uh, transcendent as being totally other, and imminence, we always feared imminence. And in the tradition of Francis, you have the imminence. But we held on to the transcendent because we, we wanted to focus on the total otherness. However, I think that in that process, and that became the dominant theology, whereas the imminence became subordinate. However, I think in many ways it's a denial of the incarnation. 
power of the incarnation. Many religions have a relationship with their creature to creator. And it's only in Christianity that emphasizes the overwhelming dignity of taking on material and raising and, and if we look at the mystery of the incarnation, it says literally to us Christians, all of creation has been touched again by God. So I think we've missed an a deeper appreciation and owning of the incarnation. To, it's in our, in other words, I'm saying it's in our tradition, but we haven't laid claim to it the way that perhaps we need to today. So it's not creating something new, it's retrieving right. a tradition that we've lost a dimension of. Anyway. A lot of work to be done. So unless you're willing to look at the New Testament and understand what kind of master God is talking about, it's the same verb um, that, that speaks in the Old Testament of mastering the earth, that speaks in the New Testament of being like Jesus. You know, uh, we're, we're going to have that uh, shortly, celebrating here next week, shortly before our God meets the tree for the last time. Um, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, I mean, this is, this is the kind of Lord and Master that we're talking about. So it's sort of like, you know, if God, if, if, if you wonder what God meant by that, you know, what do you mean God when you say Master dominated? Mm -hmm. um, uh, well, uh, my son will tell you. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we need to read that back into how we should deal with Genesis, how we should understand Genesis now. It's a real different kind of domination. Yes. It'd be fun to play with the verbs. Mm. We could understand that. That we're saying that once we lose uh, our root, spiritual root to God through nature, if, if it's polluted and destroyed in such a way, I was just wondering what other roots you saw, because like, it seems difficult to imagine. Um, it's such a desolate world. In many like uh, apocalyptic movies and books we even see today, how one could even conceive or spirit or spiritually connect with anything good if all the trees are burning. The earth is unable to grow anything, water's polluted, all, all things are dead. I mean, it's, I don't know how anyone could convince themselves of good in a world so destroyed. I mean, maybe among other human, human beings, but even then we wouldn't be able to support ourselves. I, I think this is what Tolkien worried about many years ago. Um, you, you put it very well, better than I did. I mean, one, one could say, uh, of course, in the trilogy, there is uh, redemption comes through the humility and the perseverance of the hero, the, almost the anti-hero. Uh, Frodo. Frodo. Frodo is. Uh, and there's an experience of the divine through the camaraderie, the fellowship. So he hints at other ways. But there is the danger that it's all going to be a, a wasteland. Yes, it's the wasteland. So it's just, that's what I think writers mean when they say it's a spiritual crisis too. It's a little scary. And the birds. You don't hear the birds. You guys, this is what we did. Don't hear the birds. Most recently, Quartermine reports we lost about 73% of species of bird life. Most recently. 
due to several causes. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Uh,